All right, guys, we are jumping back into our Acts series this morning, so I'm actually just going to start off by reading an entire chapter of the Bible. So buckle your seatbelts. Acts chapter 5. Here we go. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. And when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, <clears throat> but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put these men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day... In the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is God's word. So I don't know about you, but as we've been studying through the book of Acts, we read passages like this. It sort of whets my appetite to become a church like the early church was. It sort of gives you a foretaste of what it could be like If we were a people transformed by the Spirit of God in such a way that we became obedient to Jesus. Now just think about this idea of a foretaste. A foretaste is getting a taste of something before it really takes place so that when it does take place, you enjoy it even more. And I was reminded of this idea when I was at small group a couple weeks ago. My wife was sitting next to me and she, at small group, realized that her birthday was the coming Wednesday. Like my birthday's coming up on Wednesday. And I was like, oh man, I'm glad you said that because I totally forgot. <laughs> Which you can say after you've been married for 10 years. It's okay. And so at small group right there, I just said to the group, I said, well, can anyone babysit for us on Wednesday so that I can take my wife out to eat? And Sean and Steph Reeves, who are in our group, are like, yeah, sure, we can babysit. So that was all taken care of. And so immediately I started looking for a great place to go out to eat. And so I found this place in South Minneapolis called Grand Cafe, which now I would recommend. It's really good. Voted the best restaurant in 2017 in Minneapolis. Really nice place. I had to make up for the fact that I forgot, so I dropped more cash than I'd ever dropped (laughs) on a birthday meal. Word of the wise there. And so I go on Yelp, and I read reviews, and I look at the menu, and I'm telling Melissa about it, and we can almost taste what the food's going to taste like. And we can see the atmosphere in our mind's eye. And we can feel the relief of someone else watching our kids. (laughs) It's a foretaste, right? And just reading about this church, we get a foretaste of what it would be like to be that kind of community. And it begins to give us as a church a vision for what it would be like to be a church more and more on fire for Jesus, And what we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus has a calling so great and so amazing 
for our church, that it has the ability to captivate our hearts and give us a unified purpose to live for. So here's the big idea we're looking at. It's that the church, this church, Salt City Church, is called to be a foretaste of eternity. We're called to live in such a way and be a kind of people that we are sort of a city within this city. A community that people look at and they say, there is something different about that group. There is something so attractive. There is something so other about that group. The way that they live life together that I have to be a part of that or at least have to figure out what's going on. What is the source of their power and their joy and their love for one another? So we're gonna look at three different ways that our church is called to be a foretaste of eternity. The first one's a little bit surprising. Maybe you were troubled even as I read the passage the first time. This church is called to be a foretaste of judgment. Foretaste of judgment. Acts chapter five, one through five. Let me read this carefully again. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Okay, so you might remember, the church has been birthed just a few chapters before this with the bold proclamation of the word of God. These people had been saved by realizing that it was their sin that had killed Jesus. But they now had an opportunity to turn away from their rebellion against their creator and be saved by his unmerited favor toward them. Even though they had killed him, God loved them and desired that they would be saved. And so they had placed their faith in him. And this reality had exploded in their hearts. God's generosity toward them had exploded out in their generosity toward others. They just wanted to give all their stuff away. So these people are nuts. People who used to be greedy are now selling their property and giving the proceeds to the apostles to distribute to the poor. So what has happened is Ananias and Sapphira have seen this. They're like, oh, this is pretty cool. Because they're just seeing sort of the external reality of it. And they're seeing that the people who sell their property and lay it at the apostles' feet, they're kind of held in esteem in the church. So they maybe don't have the internal reality of a heart transformed and becoming generous, but they want to be praised. They want to be seen as generous, but they don't actually want to be generous. So here's what they do. They sell their property and then they enter into this little agreement together and they're like, we're gonna act like 
we gave all of the proceeds to the church, but we're just gonna give a small piece of it and we're gonna keep most of it for ourselves so we sort of get to have our cake and eat it too. What we don't learn in the passage is how the church catches wind of it, but what we learn is that they did catch wind of it. And the rest of the story is pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? Peter confronts them about their sin. They lie about it. And as a result, God kills them. And in our modern Western mindset, we're thinking, what? Are you serious? And maybe you're thinking, like, you actually believe that? And I feel like we need to kind of take a step back and we need to get a biblical perspective. We kind of need to zoom out and get a biblical perspective on how we believe that something like this can happen within the constructs of reality, okay? So here's the first thing. We as Christians believe that people, all of us, without exception, are really and truly morally guilty before a holy God. We believe that God is perfect, that he is in a category by himself. He is the only person in the universe who is flawless, and we are all deeply flawed. And as a result of our sinfulness as humanity, the world is a broken place. We are morally guilty, God is perfect, therefore, all of us, without exception, every single time we compromise God's law, every time we break one of the Ten Commandments, we deserve to die immediately. Think how the Bible begins. A man and a woman choose to eat a piece of fruit that God told them not to eat, and God cursed the whole world. God takes sin incredibly seriously. The fact that we don't die every time we sin is evidence of God's incredible graciousness. And the fact that we react so strongly against him when somebody does die for our sin, shows that we take that graciousness for granted. Here's the thing. I think whether you believe the Bible or you don't believe the Bible, that you actually believe that people deserve judgment for their sin. There's a guy named Francis Schaeffer, who's kind of a philosopher and speaker and Christian, uh, whose public ministry was mainly in the 1960s and 1970s. And he used this analogy often to kind of prove this point, that everybody believes that people should be judged for their sin. He said, imagine that you stand before God, and throughout your whole life, you had a recording device around your neck, like on a necklace. And you're kind of angry when you get before God's judgment seat because you don't think he has any right to judge you. And he says to you, well, actually, I'm not gonna judge you. The reason that you had the recording device around your neck is 
I'm only going to judge you in the way that you judged others. And so he says, can you hit play? And you hit play, and you begin to hear all of the times throughout your life that you cast judgment on other people. And he says, I'm only going to judge you for the things that you judged other people for. Do you think you would pass the test? Without exception, I think all of us know we would fail the test. Which means we all agree that we deserve judgment. Then the question is, what's the standard and who's the judge? And the biblical answer is, the standard is God's law and the judge is God himself. Which puts this event into context. Now you have to notice something very important about this. The church does not execute the judgment. The story is not Ananias and Sapphira came, Peter confronted them, they lied, so he took out a sword and cut off their head. That's not the story. All that Peter did was confront them. Here's the type of place that we're called to be. Where we are lovingly not letting each other get away with sin. We are graciously and we are purposefully confronting one another about sin because sin brings on the judgment of God. Yes, we believe in God's grace, but we don't take his grace for granted. We take our sin incredibly seriously. And so Peter confronts them And then in this instance, God kills Ananias first and Sapphira second. And it said there was great fear in the church. Do we have that kind of fear and reverence and awe? as we gather in Jesus' name before a holy God. Here's the evidence that we have that kind of fear. We, like the majority of the people in the early church, when our sin is exposed and confronted, either through the scripture or through other believers, we repent. Repent, first of all, means we acknowledge that We've broken God's law. We're cut to the heart by that reality. And then we believe. We don't believe that we're condemned. We believe that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We believe the good news. What draws us to repentance is not primarily the fear of God's judgment, although that's part of it. What draws us to repentance is the kindness of God. We see that he's given us a way of escape. Christianity is the only religion where you get to repent. In every other religion, you just have to get it right. 
We can acknowledge that we don't get it right and we can run to the cross of Jesus and we can receive forgiveness because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we get confronted about things, like Ananias and Sapphira were confronted, we can say, I did it. I did it because I'm greedy. I did it because I wanted part of the money. I did it because I wanted to look good instead of being good. And we could fall down, not dead, but sorry. We have that opportunity. But instead of repent and believe, what we're often tempted to do is pretend and deceive. Isn't it? We trade that out. And the church becomes this stagnant, hypocritical environment where we're all just pretending like we have it together and we're really exhausted because we're trying to keep up the show. Maybe it has to do with money. Maybe it has to do with something else. But there is freedom in acknowledging our guilt first before God, receiving his grace, and then acknowledging it before one another. And what begins to happen as we do that is the fear of judgment is replaced with an awe and respect for God and an intimate knowledge that you are his child and that he loves you. And so every week at Salt City, we want to invite you to repent. There's a way out from God's judgment. And it's by acknowledging our sin and trusting in Jesus. So in this way, the church is to be a foretaste of judgment. But thankfully, that's sort of the negative side of what the church is to be. There's also a grand positive in what the church is called to be. The church is to be a foretaste of wholeness, of healing, of our brokenness being replaced with healing. Let's pick up the story in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. In the early church, the church was a place of healing. For some of you, this is really hard to believe that the church could actually be a place of healing. Because when you think of the church, you think of a place where you have been deeply hurt. Been hurt by the apathy of people in church. Been hurt by the overt judgmentalism of people in church. Or some of you, even hurt by the abuse of people in the church. And you need to know that that was never God's design for the church. The church was designed by God to be a place where people 
are filled with the spirit of God and bring healing into the world. Isn't this a beautiful picture? You have multitudes of people being added to the church. So people are being saved. There's spiritual renewal happening. Over and over again, people are repenting of their sin. They're turning away from it. They're believing in Jesus. They're inviting their friends to hear the good news of the gospel message preached and their friends are getting saved. So we know that in Acts chapter two, 3,000 people were saved in a single day. Things are just ramping up. And at this point, it says more than ever multitudes are being added to their number, which means more than 3,000 people are getting saved at a time. Droves of people are coming. And when you believe that Jesus can raise you from spiritual death to spiritual life, it's really not that hard to believe that he can physically heal people. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? There's this huge debate going on about that. I really find it to be that simple. If Jesus can raise the dead, he can heal you of any disease. And so what people are doing is they're saying, I've been brought to spiritual life. This Jesus is not just the spiritual healer. He's the whole body healer. He's also the physical healer. And so people are bringing friends and relatives and acquaintances into the church. And those people are receiving physical healing. People who used to not be able to walk are able to walk. People with mental disorders are being healed of those things. People who have demons inside of them are being restored and the inside of them is being cleaned out. So there's stories all over Jerusalem about healing. I don't know about you, but I love watching war movies. And, uh, you know, there's always a scene in a war movie where the main character gets hurt and the his friends are trying to get him to the hospital as fast as they can. And the reason for that is a battlefield is not a good place to heal up. A hospital is a good place to heal up. So in every war movie, they've got the tent set up and there's like bombs flying everywhere, but that's the best place for somebody to heal up. Because that's what the church is like. It's like an outpost in the middle of a battlefield. There's no way that you're going to be able to heal up out there. And I'm saying, we don't have our stuff together. Like, we're like the guy who got shot in the leg, but he's not as injured as somebody else. And so he's got like the bandage on there. And they're like, hey, can you grab the scalpel for me? And he's like, sure. I guess I have to. Like, we're bloodied. We're messed up. We're just as broken as everybody else. But this is the best it gets. This is God's plan. We're not impressed with ourselves. But this is a hospital in a tent in the middle of a battlefield. And if you want to begin to heal from your brokenness, physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever it is, this is the place to be. This is where that's going to begin to happen. Is it going to be perfect? No. 
Occasionally, are you going to get some crossfire from some people in the hospital? Absolutely. Are you going to get hurt? Yeah, you are. But this is the place for you to heal. I was just asking myself the question, is Salt City Church a place of hurt or a place of healing? I think the answer is a little of both. Sometimes we step on each other's toes and we're hurt within our marriages, within our families, within our connection groups. But I think for the most part, God's doing some really cool stuff. People are experiencing new life in Christ. People are being healed. People are being helped here. So I think there's one of two sort of reactions we can have to this. One is we can have an under expectation for what God's gonna do in terms of healing. So we don't really think that God does that anymore. We think he's kind of like a legendary basketball player who played in the 80s who used to be really good, but now he's not very good anymore. We're like, that's cool that he used to heal people in, in acts. Too bad he didn't do that anymore. So we read about that. We get hyped up. It's kind of like watching old YouTube videos. But we really don't think that that could happen again. But there can also be sort of this over-expectation. This expectation that it's all going to happen at once, that no one's going to have any brokenness, that there's not going to be any pain within the church. I don't know which camp you're in, but I want to invite you into an imperfect place of healing, a place where Jesus is doing significant work, but we're not home yet. This is a foretaste of the healing of heaven, but it's not heaven yet. And so, since it's a foretaste of what's to come, we can even experience joy in our suffering. I think that's one of the most appealing things about the New Testament church, is that it's a foretaste of the joy of heaven. Acts 5, 38 through 42 So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So you remember just before this, the apostles are out teaching and preaching everywhere. And the first round, they are thrown into prison. And this council is trying to decide what to do with them. And while the council is trying to decide, an angel of the Lord comes, opens up the prison doors. The apostles get out. They go back out and they're preaching. The council goes to look for them. They're like, they're not in prison. They're out preaching. And instead of being like, wow, that's a miracle, they're like, go get them again. So they bring them again, and this time they're like, okay, we gotta kill these guys. And that's where we pick up the story. And this teacher of the law starts to speak up, and he says, wait, 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 guys. If this is of God, 
there is no way you're going to be able to stop it. And then we get sort of this interesting element introduced in. The apostles, instead of being miraculously freed from prison, which we know God can do, they are taken out of the prison and they get beat. What this likely means is that they beat them almost to the point of death. So they would take this whip that had like pieces of bone and things like that on the end of it and they would kind of expose their backs and they would take this whip and then once it hit their back, they would wait for these little pieces of bone and glass to dig into their back and then they would rip it off. Incredibly painful. Maybe they beat them 39 times, something like that. So you gotta imagine these guys' backs are, are exposed, sore. You can see the open flesh, maybe even some bone in their back. That's how severely they were beaten. And they come out of that situation knowing that God could have rescued them, seeing purpose in their suffering. And actually, they're rejoicing. They're like high-fiving each other, like, we got dishonored for the name of Jesus. Amazing. Our suffering has a purpose. It matters. We got beat up for Jesus. It's not a waste. People are going to be encouraged by this. People are going to be inspired by this. It's because their joy is not located in the circumstances of their life. It's located in the person of Jesus Christ. He is with them. They are experiencing the joy of having the Spirit of God live inside of them. And they are experiencing this joy tenfold because they're living obedient lives. They're doing what Jesus has called them to do. You might be a person who are like, I don't experience this joy in my relationship with Jesus. The first place you need to look is whether you're being obedient or not. The most miserable people in the world are disobedient Christians. It's just awful. Because you got the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you and he's bugging you all the time and you're saying no. And the Bible says that you can grieve the Spirit of God. So you have literally God inside of you crying. That's why you're sad. And it's like, oh, Christian life is a bummer. No, your disobedience is a bummer. God wants you to experience the joy that he has for you and that joy is on the other side of your obedience. They're experiencing joy because they're walking in the center of God's will. Some of us are saying, well, what does that look like in my life? I've never been through something so epic before. Maybe I don't have this incredibly crazy calling on my life. And I began to think of this woman that Melissa and I knew about a decade ago. Her name was Carol, and she was uh, part of this small Presbyterian church that we were part of in Yorktown, Indiana not a bustling metropolis. And Carol's husband was not a believer. Basically from the time they got married and we knew her when she was in her early 70s. 
And she would come to church every week by herself, unnoticed and unrecognized by the rest of the world as a faithful and obedient Christian. And she went to Bible study and she spent time in the word and she asked people for prayer. And she went home each night. She asked her husband to come to church with her and he mocked her for her faith. For 40 years. And just before we left the church, her husband came to know Jesus. She experienced the joy of seeing her husband come to know Jesus because she experienced the joy of walking with Jesus through 40 years of suffering. I don't know what suffering God has brought into your life at this point on the path of obedience or what suffering he will bring into your life in the future, but I know that as you walk through suffering, Jesus will be with you. And this might be the place where our witness as a church is most attractive to people because everyone in the world is looking for otherworldly joy. And if they see that we have joy when life is not going well for us, I think they'll look over and say, wow, there's something different. I want to be part of that. Let me end this way. Martin Luther, the reformer, said this. God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. We're not saved because we're exemplary people or exemplary church. We're saved by what Jesus has done for us. Period. But the world needs us to be the church. Our friends need us to be the church. Our families need us to be the church. This city needs us to be a city on the hill. It needs us to be the light of the world. And I'm not talking about the church as an institution. I'm talking about the church as a collection of individuals. And so let me ask you this. Is your life in this community a foretaste for this city of eternity? What an amazing calling. This city has every right to expect us to live in a different way than they do. Are we? Let's ask God that that would be true of each of us. Father God, we want to be this kind of church. We want to give people a foretaste of eternity. We want to show people what life looks like in community when people are repenting and believing, living lives on fire for you. I ask that you would lead us to repentance, God, over and over again. I know that's not a one-time thing. It's an over and over again thing throughout life. Help us to be honest about things that we've been scared about. And as we do that, as we step out, would you fill us with your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.